0: Hello and welcome to Whoa Buddy. Wo buddy! And I'm here with the buddy. Um, so, quick housekeeping um, this is actually the first episode that we're recording after uh, the official release of our podcast. So, we want to thank all of our friends and uh, family and all of the other people who've listened to our podcast and supported us and given us some very valuable feedback. So, we thank you very much for that. Another short announcement that we have is that we're now on Twitter at the rate WoBuddies, B-U-D-D-I-E-S. b u d d i e s, And in the link in our description, you should be able to find a link to all the things that we reference or recommend um, in an online website um, that would make it easier for you to access any of the things that we talk about. Um, we've also got an email ID that's podcast at the rate gmail.com. And the other small note I have to say is um I had gotten the name of the uh, the character from the Hayo Miyazaki's uh, last name wrong, and I got the correction. Uh, so the name is Jiro Horikoshi. I think I'd gotten his first name right, but not his last name. Wrong. So it's Horikoshi. Um, so yeah, that's the that's a small bit of housekeeping. What's up with you, buddy? Um, I have been thinking about boredom um, as a consequence of being in lockdown and quarantine and in kind of a social desert for quite a while now um and i've been thinking about how it's interesting that there are times when or at least i've been reflecting on the times when i have been the most creative mm-hmm. and for me it tends to be when i'm not doing a lot um that's when i end up when i'm really bored i think is the is what that means is when i'm fairly bored when i don't have a lot to do i end up having pretty um, significant creative um drives um, and also when I'm really yeah. stressed um, I can relate with that yeah and so I was wondering so I wanted to discuss what are catalysts for creativity and so the first dichotomy was boredom versus occupation um, and so is it a consequence of being extremely bored and if so why or is it possible to be creative when you're occupied I think I've just come upon The perfect answer I could find to your question, which by the way, I love. Um, So my simple answer is this. I think more often than not, when we're bored, uh, whether or not we're with other people, because I think lockdown is a specific circumstance where we can often be bored alone, but it's not uncommon for us to be bored in an interactive environment with other people, which could often be uh, the stimulation for our creativity. Uh, but at the same time I think being occupied uh, means that your brain is often running and I think there is uh, a part of me that that generally believes that um, some level of momentum and uh, cognitive capacities it's like when the engine is already running you're just ready to go Um, there's there's some something about that idea that Mm. feels very very obvious to me Um, because I often feel like when I'm already really in the middle of a process, and I just suddenly switched to doing a different process. Um, You know, my brain's already in gear. All I have to do is wait for a while, and it'll just begin to spurt out ideas on its own. Um, But I also wanted to ask you on the question of of boredom being the source of creativity. Um, Because for me, I can often relate some of my creative boredom moments to being when I was back in middle school or high school which when i was technically supposed to be paying attention in class but i would be doodling with my with my friend or i'd be um trying to come up with weird um things in my head and uh, or ideas mm-hmm. so it wasn't boredom in isolation it was boredom while being engaged with my well not really engaged but at least uh, not being in an environment that wasn't uh filled with other people or at least with other objects right i so yeah i think for me from the time when I was uh, younger and I my creative outlet used to be writing poems and that kind of silly stuff up till songwriting and that kind of stuff um, and now more recently just riffing around with music and producing tracks and all that kind of thing. Um, I definitely mm-hmm. think there's been a transition, there's been a change in mindset around these things but also during quarantine I was consistently churning out covers and writing a little bit of music fairly regularly because I think as a consequence of being bored, there's also a lot of time to self-reflect and spend time with oneself and channel that and convert that into something that's creative. Um, And so I think boredom, in other words, creates space for me to be productive in a creative way that occupying myself otherwise with um, more routine activities takes away from being able to do that in some ways if that makes sense. So you agree that giving your your mind peace and quiet just lets it come up uh, with things to distract you and those can be new ideas or or ways of looking at things in a different way or or, you know things along those lines. Right exactly and I think I mean at least I'm also trying to think of examples where you know that I've heard of authors who kind of isolate themselves to be able to write you know and then there are artists who do that kind of thing as well there are actors who to do method will um, isolate themselves and that's one form of channeling creativity right and I think that that might be the kind of part where I which I relate with more mm-hmm. I think the idea of having peace and quiet and seclusion uh, being a wellspring of uh, of creativity and ideas is definitely something that's that's well known for me the most recent example is when Kanye West, the uh, well-known rapper and producer, he decided to go to Wyoming Mm -hmm. and in the middle of the mountains and set up a production studio. Uh, And in it was the year 2018, I believe, where he released five albums uh, with different artists. So he would just bring his friends Mm -hmm. and other creative people to that studio. One of the albums was his own album and another was an album that he did with Kid Cuddy, which was Kid mm-hmm. Uh But three of the al- other albums were produced entirely for other artists. Okay. So I think there are there are examples of this where people decide, you know what, I want to get away and maybe just have a few other creative people where we can, in uh, solitude almost, come up with these ideas away from society. But I want to go back to the opposite idea, which is that um, maybe... um you can bounce off existing momentum. And I think perhaps the best uh, phrase that exemplifies that idea is being in the zone. Mm -hmm. I think perhaps being in the zone is often associated with people who are doing monotonous tasks or repetitive tasks. And this could be obviously, let's say someone who's playing a sport, they often get in the zone or someone's doing, let's say they're painting or they're playing an instrument and they're in the zone mm-hmm. so perhaps it's already a learned or a practice thing but I also think that there is a creativity that comes from being in the zone and you could have something that is new and fresh that you invent while being in the zone right yeah that makes sense I think uh, that goes really well into one of my second I think um, if ors um, that's part of this that's practice or sudden bursts Right, and that's the other, the second kind of dichotomy, I suppose. And so the practice part of it is does doing something repetitively, it could be a craft, it could be a really mundane activity, help to cultivate and regularize creativity. Right. So um, I know of people who I think have I've spoken to who regularly songwrite, who have said that every day they wake up in the morning and they write. It doesn't matter what, but they're writing, you know, and They're kind of coaxing creativity out every day, whether or not it exists in some ways. So that's kind of practice. And then the sudden burst part of it is, is it just you're sitting around one day and suddenly a song idea pops into your head and you write it out and it's suddenly a hit single or something of that nature, you know? And Mm -hmm. so that's kind of it's a good segue what you were saying into this kind of dichotomy. And obviously one of them to me seems more sustainable if you're trying to be an artist. Um, than the other, the one where it's practice, right? But it also seems um, a little too good to be true, right? It it just doesn't seem like you can always be as creative. All the time. Yeah. I think, so what you just said reminded me of something. Um, Perhaps the idea of practice or a spontaneous burst of creative expression has to do with the profession itself. What you, what you were talking about reminded me was this conversation that um, Abish Matthew and Kanan Kill were having on an episode of a Journey of a Joke, mm. where he was discussing how he came up with one of the, the the tags or the bits on a joke that he was already building. Now, the nature or at least the way that Kanan himself practices stand-up comedy is the very dedicated way that often uh, stand-up comics do. You go out multiple nights uh a week mm-hmm. regardless it's right it's 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 a ritual almost to go and do it and you might bomb you might do well but you just practice and you keep doing it and you keep exploring ideas and different ways mm. of doing things and he was walking to a gig when he was in australia when suddenly um this idea popped into his head and i think the idea was um it was a joke about the uh, the size of the Indian population or yeah, something. Yeah. And that idea sort of that that just that just clicked in his head while he was on his way to a gig and he then ended up adding it in the set mm-hmm. as a tag to his joke, and then it worked. So I think stand-up comedy, or maybe specifically people who do it in the way, uh, the ritualistic way that Kanan does, yeah. They have an ability to straddle both sides of this, uh, the balance, which is you practice something daily, hoping to to squeeze a new idea out of yourself, because really you need to do that over and over again for something to event for something that's even half good to come out. Yeah, you know, because you have to keep sculpting. For you to get something that's good but also you can rely on these moments of clarity and sudden realization that will push you over and give you just the right piece that will fit into the the puzzle that you were building yeah that makes sense and i get and i think uh, the i don't know i think you've introduced an interesting element of it depends on how creativity is defined and we can say that that's not solely based on the art form itself or art itself you know, um, a marketing job is creative inherently, you know? Um, and yes. so that you're getting paid to do it. You have to go and do it every day. Um, you don't really have a choice, you know, it's that kind of a thing where, um, what really, how are we establishing creativity? And I admit that mine is largely based on, I think music and acting and theater and that kind of stuff. Um, but I think expanding that notion introduces some interesting complexities. Another idea. I, I just want to put in there is this it's this—it's—it's where you combine both of these things and where um, the idea is that people who are new to the art form they might have to rely on this hustle or the struggle of constantly grinding uh, until they manage to come up with something that's half decent whether it's writers whether it's uh, stand-up comics or whether it's musicians um, but I think people who've been, it, been in the profession for long enough begin to figure out that there is a way of doing this that works well mm. and they're they're able to hack it almost to say, I understand this art so well because I've been doing it for so long that I'm able to not own um um uh, I don't have to wait for a sudden moment of realization. I can almost manufacture that through practice. Right. Um that's that's another thing. And I think this is what when people say they're trying to hone their craft or build their their craft that's what they're talking about it's where they've taken something which basically takes dedication and time but now to an outsider looks so effortless in the way that they've managed to to do it but in reality a lot of it has just been them putting in the time Mm -hmm. with whatever their their passion is yeah and that definitely i think seems like something that's very universal the idea that um depending on what stage of learning you're in and with a certain level of maturity you're going to gain the confidence to be able to channel creativity regardless because you've kind of unlocked, um, in some ways, the potential to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Going into the, I think the third thing that I wanted to talk about, in, and you touched on this um, slightly, but I want to delve into it a little deeper, is what are the impacts of isolation and interaction as opposite to each other in the creative process and how do they influence or inspire differently um because like what you were saying right the kanye example is where somebody is in the presence of other creative minds um similarly a collaborative writing project i'm sure the way dan harman writes right a writer's room um thing is where it's a collaborative creative process versus um Mm -hmm. Uh, an individual one where it's a songwriter, maybe John Muir goes off to his um, farm somewhere and he's writing an entire album mm-hmm. right on his own. Um, and so just to, I think, speculate as to what the differences are and how they catalyze creativity in different ways. Um, what do you think that, that those have different impacts on? Um, I think this is very difficult. Part of this might just have to do with personality because I think some people are just Uh, more comfortable and perhaps even skeptical of other people, they might be scared that other people will take over their ideas Mm. and that they want to have an idea and own it completely. On the flip side, there might be those who recognize that the benefits of working together with someone else who can fill in the gaps of knowledge or complement your ideas in a way that begin to make them whole. And they, they realize that when they do something it's only half-finished and when they bring in someone else they can make something be complete in in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think uh, personality or, or just preference might be one way to do it. Um, but I find that, you know, a single person's mind would take a much longer time so you know this idea of repeatedly doing the same thing Mm. a single person's mind would take a very very long time to accomplish what a couple of people who have very different ideas could accomplish in much lesser time Um, and i i think that's something that's valuable also because um you're going to get something always that is a product of different people's ideas and to me, that's always exciting, when I see the combination of different ideas coming together and forming something that's completely new, but at the same time you can recognize it from the sum of the the, the people who brought their, their selves to the idea. I think it's difficult um, to say which um, process or approach has merit to it. And I think often many artists will go through phases of, of staying within themselves trying to find their own voice and identity while also working with other people and again um none of these are exclusive they might just have to do with the time in your life or also they could just be project to project because i think for example there are stand up comedians who do that as mm. this is only me and i work all alone yeah. but they might work uh, as one of the script writers on a on a sitcom or a show that they're writing or they might be a part of an improv group or something where collaboration and building on each other's idea is part of the process so um, i think there are benefits to both and they give very very different things i do fear though people who tend to stick only to themselves because after a point it can be a very egotistical process where you right you you it, it, it can be a way of you just trying to to build to blind yourself an entire to build an entire body of work that is around your own psyche and your own consciousness and your own experiences and that can become a little um, dare I say masturbatory in the way that uh, it can manifest and into you know and other people might not actually see it that way or or appreciate it in the way that you yourself do yeah um I have a couple of thoughts um and so I'll go through them categorically. I think the first is the concept of creative control, which is, I think, where you started, Um, and the differences between creative control and um, kind of the limited control that you have in a collaborative setting. Um, And that I think that that's important. So it has to do with, I think, uh, the creative personality type of an individual. Um, Do they feel like their contribution is valid regardless of the setting, Um, or does Mm -hmm. it need to have center stage in, in a specific kind of ownership um, way. The second thing is I definitely think that we should also acknowledge that there are often times where people are thrown into groups together or they misidentify a good collaborator um, and those end up being more harmful than they could be good at times um, in terms of collaborating with each other. So um you know and so i think that that's also there's potential for that kind of thing to happen um as well the last thing that i wanted to say is that don't you think that there is potential for that to happen in a group setting as well um where people are so aligned with each other and collaborating with each other that they collectively you know this the concept of a circle jerk where people are collectively kind of glorifying their own work um and as a group blinding themselves to the creative value of their output. I like that you use the metaphor of the circle jerk It ties. Back to <laughs> yeah, exactly. With my own. <laughs> uh, yes, of course, of course. I, because I think we can. We often tend to look at when you know when you see music bands and stuff there's always this talk of, oh, they decided to split up because of creative differences. So that's, that's I guess, a phenomenon that's well understood and recognized. But what you're talking about, I think, happens more often than not. And it's something that I myself have experienced uh, sometimes when I'm working on creative projects, where people are either too afraid of being critical of each other, or that they're just so naive that they decide to say yes to everything. Mm that's on the table. And you end up coming up with something that is really a collage that's completely um, confusing. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really paint a real picture. There is no real cohesion, and there is no distinctive voice. And I think voice is an important thing, um, which is why you might, again, to not to use idioms too much, but the phrase is uh, too many cooks can spoil right. the broth. I, I think that there is obviously a a limit there is there is a certain point at which you achieve critical mass beyond which adding many more people would mean uh, compromising on um, the identity mm. or the creative efficiency of the project. And perhaps that's why people decide to stick within themselves because they can allow themselves to have a unique voice and people say, I recognize that I see that voice, you know. With people you've talked about and referred to before, you know Wes Anderson, for example. He's someone who clearly has a voice. Yeah. Um. But that doesn't mean he's opposed to collaboration, working with other people who help him achieve the voice that he does. Right. Because he works with with costume designers, with cinematographers, with actors, and things like that. So, um. But to 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 conclude, I guess, um, when you work in a collaborative setting, that can turn into a circle joke you often lose that idea of, okay, but we have to come together and we have to all agree on looking at the same thing and having a collective vision that fits, um, that fits uh, this, this idea or this thing that we're building together and that will be therefore seen by other people as not many people working on it together, but rather it would seem when you experience the thing that they've created that only one person right. created it. And I think that's the most beautiful thing. Where well, you couldn't tell—it's just the melding of the minds is so, so beautiful. It's impossible to tell that there were men- multiple people yeah. behind the, the idea. Yeah, and I think the Beatles kind of stand out because there have been so many other bands like the Beatles that have just not stayed together. Um, and in mm-hmm. some ways, that is attributable to the fact that at least three of them were had a significant part in. I don't know about Ringo, but they, the, at least the other three had a significant partnership in terms of songwriting, even though I know Lennon and McCartney had some kind of disagreement in the middle. Um, Mm -hmm. They still, I mean, they had a really good run for a band like theirs because the bands that came after in the early 2000s Britpop stuff, right? um, Blur and Noel Gallagher, Oasis, all of those people, um, they didn't, I don't know, achieve that as well. No, you're right. I think in the in the Brit War, uh, sorry, the pop, um, the Pop era, where you were having the battle between Oasis and Blur, it was, uh, it was clear that within those bands itself, there were creative differences between the two leading voices yeah. uh, of the respective bands. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah, that's true. So yeah, I guess that's uh, that's the end of what I have to say. Yeah, that that was really fun to talk about. I think it's something that I think about a lot in the context of my own um writing because i find a lot of times at least so much of my life so far has been um checkpointed let's say by examinations and conclusion of some kind of academic accomplishment um and so at the at the culmination always whenever i have exams or that kind of stress um and the period right after i tend to have identified in my life that i tend to be very creative in those moments and so uh, it was something I wanted to delve into with you that's great i I love the topic i I like how we move from boredom and creativity into um the individual versus the group when it comes to the mm-hmm. the the creation of new ideas yeah, so what's up with you buddy? um so you know, I think our conversation last week were exceptionally heavy and really dense, so I like the topic that you picked because it's relatively lighter, and I thought I'd pick something lighter to talk about as well this week. And I decided i talk about comic books and our childhood and how comics were a part of our childhood mm. in a very interesting way. Um, to set up context, um, both of us grew up in India. And so many of the comics that we read weren't superhero comics, so, you know, they weren't Marvel or DC comics as we were growing up. I think we had like a volume of Batman Beyond and like one issue of Justice League America. But aside from that, uh, the comics that we read were very very specific, and I want to go through these different kind of comics that we nice. read, and I want to talk about them and share memories and yeah. you know, just have have a good time reminiscing on the good old days of summer <laughs> holidays and reading comics and stuff. Um, the first obvious thing is uh, Amar Chitra Kata, also called ACK. Yep. Um, to for for people who aren't familiar, Amar Chitra Kata is basically I mean literally means immortal picture stories. That's what Katha is. Um and what uh, they they were the they were the most, I guess, important and well known um publication of Indian comic uh, comic stories and comic strips and stuff like that. Um they had a couple of different kind of buckets, I guess, in which they had these different um comics. Yeah. So I guess the first time were mythological stories, uh, which were you know, either directly from Hindu mythology or they were, you know, things like there were subplots of the Mahabharata and stuff yeah. with, you know, uh, character portraits of like Ekalavya or you have the story of Nala and Damayanti. Or Karna, example. yep. Or Karna, exactly. So you have like very interesting character portraits of the mythological characters, which is a very unique way of, of doing that. The other thing that they would also do is like moral stories. Yeah. Uh, Akbar and, and Birbar, Kanali Raman, Supandi. Ah, uh, yeah. My my favorite kind were the Jataka tales, which are similar to the Aesop's fables, but they're the Indian version of it, I guess, where you take animals who are anthropomorphized and their interactions end up teaching you some uh, story that's related to a moral lesson. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the final category is probably a general historical uh, stuff. You know, so they take someone like Ashoka, who's one of the uh, kings of ancient India uh, who ruled uh, parts of northern India or someone like Swami Vivekananda yeah. who is another figure from the 19th century India. But my favorite is actually the things that you meant which were the stories of these two men of wit who would help solve these very unique problems uh, Tenali Raman and, and Birbal yeah. Um and I wanted to talk about ACK first, uh, generally, before moving on to some of the other stuff. You did mention Supandi, and I have to also say that Supandi is actually part of Tinkle Comics. Right. Which was... wasn't was in Amar that Right. Absolutely. And Tinkle had main, the three main Tinkle... Kalia, Supandi, and Shikari Shambhu, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So I want to get on to that uh, next, but let's start with, with ACK. What are the things that you remember, or what are your favorites in when you were reading ACK, I think uh, I want to begin by broadly. I think one also recognizing that you've done a good job of categorizing it into these three buckets, but also what that means mm-hmm. in the broader scheme of things and how, in a lot of ways, even though the education in India, right, uh, at least historical education in most countries in the within the formal education system comes fairly late. Um, And this was a way in which you didn't have to wait until middle school history lessons to learn about the country that you're from. And in a country with a history as rich as ours, I think that that held a lot of value in a lot of different ways. Um, So especially the historical stuff and the mythological stuff, it was a good way to culturally educate ourselves before in a way that was not necessarily religious. or and i think not necessarily i think politically motivated although i could be wrong about that i don't know enough um about Amar Katha and the power dynamics of the publication but um i just think that that's such an interesting way because i know being in america talking to americans there aren't there aren't similar things here so there is a there's a huge gap across states across public education systems with people coming into my college from so many different states There is a disconnect in their education about history, but in some ways, and I'm sure that's true in India as well, but there are some things that Amar Chitra Katha has helped unify, you know, ubiquitously at a very young age for us. Um, Yeah. I mean, India is also quite a large and diverse country, and I think one of the biggest divides you could think of, like between the north and the south of India, where history is often not very well known of of the north versus of the south. But I agree in general with what you said uh, in terms of how this is a good supplement or even an introduction to some of our historical, moral and uh, mythological education even. Uh, in And I think the medium of the comic book or the comic strip itself was, was very very cool because it's engaging for children, there's colors, there's shapes and you begin to put faces and ideas um, to all of this so it's an in, it's an interactive and an engaging way for you to to learn i guess but for me mostly it was it was entertainment i know today we think of entertainment as a very dynamic form of entertainment because of you know television and the visual medium yeah but how much Because like i just said it's immortal uh, picture stories picture stories it's just picture stories that you have to run the reel in your head of how these things are going yeah. through um and I want to go to, again, Tenali Raman, and this is so unique, right? Because Birbal was a very North Indian character. Birbal is basically a Rajput character. That's who Birbal was. Yeah. Uh, whereas Tenali Raman is a very South Indian uh, specific... He is a South Indian Brahmin character, right. so Tenali Raman. Is. And I think what's really interesting about these two are that they're, in a lot of ways, parallels from different times, right? Um, because Tenali Raman was kind of the vizier kind of character of the court slash jester um who would yeah. who would kind of advise the king who at the time was Krishna Devaraya, if i'm not mistaken um at the same yeah. time birbal was the one of the nine gems um i think navratna is the word in hindi um of akbar who was the emperor in the in the mughal empire at the time and so i think that that there is such an interesting parallel theme to the way in which they do things but also yeah, it was so entertaining, it was so funny, I think a lot of it was really really funny and I think a lot of it is extremely universal. There, isn't, there aren't necessarily inherent cultural things about it um, because some of it is just slapstick um, comedy, very Charlie Chaplin-esque yeah. in some ways. Especially the Senali Raman stuff, I think those I recognize as being extremely slapstick. The Birbal stuff was almost as if puzzles or quandaries that he would then find unique ways of solving or or enlightening us. I remember one of the most unique stories, or rather puzzles, that he was put was, um, there is a a foreign traveler who comes into the court, and he's basically a language translator. And mm. he starts to speak in any language that is posed to him, and they find different people of different languages to ask him questions. And he's fluent in all of these languages. And then he poses <laughs> this, this kind of uh, uh, puzzle to, to to be able to say that... Um, I'm so good at all of these languages. I don't think you can figure out what my mother tongue or my natural language is. And Birbal decides to take it upon himself to figure this out because this is also, I believe, this is this usually the angle of this is the task that the emperor has set out for him. So the way he solves it, spoiler alert, is um, he gets someone to sprinkle water on him in the middle of the night so that he wakes up in a fright and starts cursing. <laughs> And then he realizes when he's cursing at night that obviously the language that he first reacts in must be his mother tongue, and therefore he deduces that he's Gujarati or something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that's you know stories like th- like this one just so clear in my mind, and I remember how that happened so so vividly. Yeah. Um, and it's it's just wonderfully uh, surprising and fun the solutions that they find. Wasn't that that other guy as well, the guy on the mule, Hussain or something? Yes. Uh, I. I cannot remember the name of the character, but he was also a court jester or he was uh, a comic character of uh, of sorts. I remember uh, who we were talking about, because I believe when we had gone to Uzbekistan, exactly. they had a statue of, um, of Mullah, Nasruddin. Donkey. Mullah Nasruddin, yep. so we had, yes, Mullah, Mullah Nasruddin also had his own uh, comic uh, strips as well, and it was similar, he would play the jester role. And be kind of a prankster, but also very nice and, and warm to people. Um, the next thing I want to go on to is obviously Tinkle Comics uh, and, you know, Kalia, Supandi and Shikari Shambhu. Just briefly to talk about uh, your, your fun with these stories. For me, I, I want to ask you this quickly. What is your favorite of the three? Because I know what mine is. I would say Shikari Shambhu was probably my favorite. Um, Hell yeah. Because is uh, is it the same for you? Yes, it is. Nice. It is. Yeah, because I think, I don't know, Kalia... I was over the anthropomorphization, whatever the word for that is, of animals and Kalia kind of got, I don't think I read a lot of Kalia either. Um, It was mostly, I think, Supandi and Shikari Shambhu that we read Um, and Mm -hmm. Supandi, I don't know, for some reason, the bumbling idiot is not my cup of tea Um, or at least the way in which he was portrayed, the kid that does extremely stupid things, Um, as opposed to Shikari Shambhu that was... Very well intentioned naivety um, in some ways, he sets out with a goal and messes Shikhari it up. Shikari Shambu fits into that, that thing that you're saying where it's very chaplinesque esque in the yeah. way that the things happen. It's also very reminiscent of, say, Mr. Bean. Where yeah. I I also think the parallel between him and Bean is that he doesn't speak at all. He's a completely mute character. Mm-hmm. There are no dialogues for Shambu. Um, you know, every time he he's trying to go and do a mission. And he's also a bumbling idiot, to be honest. But I, I understand the distinction you're drawing between the Subandi character and the Shigari Shambhu. He ends up just completely by happenstance <laughs> to, to, to land the animal that he's trying to trap. Uh, uh, and it's always because of some kind of outside force that helps him do it. Um, basically saying that luck always seems to favor this character uh, despite his incompetence. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's so funny. Yeah. I remember, I think there was this one where he thinks that the tiger tail is actually something mm-hmm. else, and he sleeps next to it, or something like that, something crazy, and then he wakes up next to the tiger and freaks out. Um, <laughs> it's just really fun. Yeah, and he's he's also a coward, if I remember yeah. correctly. Whenever he actually encounters the animal, he runs away in fear, and then once the animal gets accidentally captured, the whole stick is that he then pretends very... Uh, to be brave and as if he yeah. did have a hand in, in capturing the animal, which I, I for some reason, that just did not get old. Yeah. It was just funny every time anyway. Anyone... And for our listeners, um, Shikari Shambhu is, uh, effectively translates to Hunter Shambu, and so he's a, he's a forest hunter kind of guy. So he's wearing the safari suit with the um, rounded hat, and he has a gun on him and a mustache. So that's kind of the image that you should have in mind when you're thinking about this fellow. Um, the other brief detour I want to make is um, what are your memories of when we went to the Comic-Con that happened in India And some of the comics that you saw when you first went there. What were your impressions of what at the time seemed like an, a nascent but also uh, indigenous comic um, scene and, and creative uh, people that were doing their own thing um, in India that was kind of In fact, as opposed to A.C.K. and Tinkle, modeled on the superhero and graphic novel tradition that existed in, you know, the Anglophone or in the Western world. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting. So there are two elements to it. I think one is the social environment of the Comic-Con, which I think was completely kind of just a replication of, the Universal Comic Con model and the social environment was also the same thing, right? Everybody, very few people were trying to dress up or go as anything that was Indian. Um, in a lot of ways, everybody was trying to go as an X Man or a Spider Man or as a Marvel comic or a Mario, um, and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. There was very little of actual Indian, um, superheroes and that kind of stuff, which was, I think, um, in retrospect disappointing, but in the moment it was very impressive and exciting, um. But at the same time, the 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 stalls and the content of the Comic-Con, I think I was very, very impressed by. I still can't get over the Ravan comic that we got. Um, that was an origin mm-hmm. story of Ravan, who's a demon in one of the great Indian epics, the Ramayana. Um, Ravan is kind of the demon, but they they kind of do the anti-hero concept um Is that what it's called? I don't know. They just do it from... Yeah, they the the anti-hero and took it from his perspective. Yeah, Yeah. so kind of like the Joker, um, where you end up empathizing with Ravan through the comic and the graphics are just so detailed. So they kind of took the good parts of, um, I think, the detail and the attention to detail and the colors and that kind of stuff from the Western comic world, but they made it their own in a way that I think I was very, very impressed by. Um, Mm -hmm. in in the Ravan comic and I think that that might have been one of my most vivid memories of the Comic Con Um, I also wanted to follow up with I actually found out recently so there's an Indian media company called the Viral Fever that went viral on YouTube in like 2010 or something like that Um, and then they made themselves into a platform for media and they were founded by this guy called Arunab Kumar who then he left the organization because of I think um, sexual assault allegations Um, But he has started now a company that is, uh, they make digital, so graphics, graphic novels based on socially conscious Indian themes. Um, And they've been doing that for the last, I think, four or five years. And I recently discovered that. I'll find out the name and mention it next time. But um, that was something that was also very encouraging to see that's happening. That's interesting. So it's more (coughs) contemporary stories. Uh, that are kind of been told in the graphic novel format but based out of the Indian context yeah I also I mean the the other thing is why I think this is important and this is kind of a memory of mine from I think 2009-2010 our father worked for a microfinance startup called Echo Um, and I couldn't get over how they had kind of come to the realization that because of the way both inconsistency and lack of Um, formal education in India, Um, you can't really bank on literacy to educate um, or to get a message across, especially in rural India, um, in a consistent manner. And so what they had come up with was some kind of comic. And you're seeing a lot of that in India, a lot of animations, a lot of comics that are happening to make people aware of things, to educate people about things that I think is really, really impressive. Yeah, and I think the, also, the cool thing was that obviously those are also done as a comic, but I don't know how much it solves the literacy issues, especially when the the dialogue and the voice boxes are still being done. Um, admittedly, in, uh, in the regional uh, languages or in the vernacular, but it's still written, so you wouldn't be able to understand it purely through the pictures. But I think the idea was that that makes it easy for you to educate people on on the specific subject that you want to reach out to them on yeah um the next thing that i want to go on to is uh tintin and asterix and obelix tintin obviously animated by the belgian artist Erje, uh, which was a pseudonym and uh, we ended up visiting the museum of when we visited brussels uh and there's obviously asterix and obelix which is the french comic uh strip and then obviously comic uh book series Uh, which was by Rene Gossini and Albert Uderzo. I can't remember. I believe Gossini was the writer and Uderzo was the artist, but I might have gotten it the other way around. Mm -hmm. That sounds right to me. At least the names do. I don't know about the creative roles, but uh, no, I think that was, wasn't that a birthday gift each? One set was a gift for your birthday and one was for mine or something like that. Um, I cannot remember if it was, but what I do think was most impressive was that actually it was in our school library that we first got an exposure yeah. to Tintin as well as to Asterix and Oblix comics, which were in English, by the way. They weren't in the original French that they were written in, but we liked them so much that our parents decided to buy us the whole box sets, basically, of both of these comics. So we, own, we still own the full collections Man. of all of the Tintins and all of the Asterix and Oblix um, comic books. Uh, which were a slightly different format they're much bigger books they're not like the usual uh, comic book size Mm -hmm. Um, because you know they'd actually started off as being just comic strips in newspapers and magazines and then had become so popular and so interesting to people that they had managed to get publications behind them to create full stories and characters across stories and Tintin so they create even villains who come across master yeah. populace for example who's who's across stories and stuff uh, and obviously both of these franchises are very very successful and very famous with their own film adaptations and so many other things behind yeah. them but i want but I think to me these were the 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 ones that were very very unique and the ones that we read um very dedicatedly that weren't specifically Indian um, these were our international comic uh foundations, yeah. I think, These, because, like I mentioned at the beginning, we didn't read um, superhero comics, but we did read all of the amazing adventures that Tintin and Snowy and Captain Haddock and Cuthbert Calculus had. And the Thompson uh, brothers. As well as, <laughs> and the Thompson and Thompson brothers. And, you know, the thing that was so so impressive to me about Asterix and Oblix is that even though we weren't reading them in the original French, they had managed to translate all of the humor... Yeah which was basically, it's all linguistic humor. It's all, uh, most of it is. It's, it's, I mean, some of it is, again, very physical um, humor, but it's based on uh, comedic violence almost. But a lot of it is puns or or circumstances where you use wordplay to make the human. And I thought it was so impressive because um, I didn't even know that this was something that had to be, I mean, for me, the task of even translating that uh, from, let's say, French into English or, you know, so many other languages that those that those books have been translated into seems so hard. Yeah. And yet I personally, as someone who read it in English, feel very, very gratified that I had an experience where I got the real experience with Asterix and Obelix and those characters. I agree. I agree. I think um, for me, at least the way I've been thinking about it and since you brought it up is just that this is kind of, uh, those were complete worlds that were created that I was able to exist. Within you know at a time and it was almost kind of the equivalent of a, a TV series that we were consuming but in literary format literary slash visual exactly. format in a way that I knew about the villages I knew about the running gags I knew about the recurring characters I knew about the cameos you know Cleopatra would come once in a while she would hop in and hop out um, I knew that there are going to be there's going to be an action scene where they punch each other up so there was kind of structure. Um, but it was still unexpected they're going to run out of potions sometimes Um, (laughs) you know and the same thing with Tintin it's less predictable but the characters are built upon with a lot of intensity Um, right there was that guy that annoying fellow who comes and knocks there's a little prince um, Ahmed I think was his name Um, and that kind of stuff I think those have just like created worlds that I can't um n- yeah. detach myself from that i feel this connection to in a way that's very very deep i think the tintin stories were were so great um because i mean the astrix and obelix was clearly a funny comic it was hilarious. This, it, was, it, was just, it was just it was packed with jokes yeah. it was just packed with jokes tintin on the other hand there was so many other elements it was much more diverse in the way that the story was because there were setups, ups there was villain lines there was um, there was humor, whether it was through Calculus or through Haddock. Um, there was mystery, and then there was the whole uh, adventure or detective angle to some of these things. Yeah. Um, and, you know, getting in trouble, dealing with actual bad guys, and all of these things. I, I had, you know, and then Snowy plays this small role where he plays such a vital, uh, a small but vital um, contribution to the way that the plot furthers itself. Um, I thought, I mean, all of these things to me make... Tintin, a much more holistic comic as a whole. But if you really want to laugh, I think Asterix, Asterix and Oblix any day is one of yeah. the best. Oh, the validation. One of my favorite my favorite um, things from Asterix and Oblix is the soldiers that would get beat up, the Roman soldiers. Oh. And the, mm-hmm. the there'll be one impish guy who'll just, every time, almost consistently across every book, there'll be one guy who'll say, join the army, they said. It's a good life, they said. Um, And it's just (laughs) hilarious to me Um, how they just consistently keep getting themselves beat up. I think the willing suspension of disbelief is that you have to, once you buy into the premise that there exists a potion and these guys are actually indomitable, which is the word that uh, I I learned from the book, from the Aztecs and Obelix thing, um, anything is possible from then on. And the, the final thing that I wanted to touch upon is something that's very, very personal to me. And it's something that I shared a passion for also with one of my childhood best friends, uh, whose name is Amartya, who we affectionately call uh, Bin Bin. And this is Calvin and Hobbes. I don't know the extent to which you yourself have read Calvin and Hobbes, uh, which is a comic strip by Bill Watterson. Um, but Calvin and Hobbes obviously is something that I would see on newspapers. But I used to read avidly, again, back in our school library because they used to have the whole book volumes which used to deal with the more, um, let's say, longer story arcs and, and ideas. Uh, you know, like, I think there was one which is Revenge of the Snowman or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, Calvin and Hobbes, I mean, first of all, it was just such a smart comic, which was, it had a child as the uh, as the protagonist. Right. Um, and his imaginary tiger as being real to him, and to me, um, to to have that whole idea of the child's reality and the way that this world looks like to the child, which was done through many many different metaphors, whether it was through his imaginations of him being space Spiff. man, Spiff, or whether it, or, or or the dinosaurs and his Jurassic imaginations, and then juxtaposing that with his actual yeah. school life and the mundaneness of his realities, um, Susie and his character, the him and the bully. Uh, the Snowman, like I said. Uh, and just, I think the the thing that resonated with me so well uh, when I was, uh, you know, in my teens and still, I guess, 14 or 15 years old was some of the very deep and mature philosophical uh, discussions and insights that I was getting out of that comic. I think at that age, I was not expecting to have philosophy imparted to me through a comic, let alone by a six-year-old in a comic and his tiger. Absolutely. And there was always... Um, the the way of life that was consistent because Calvin looked at life a certain way and often they would resolve it by the tiger just saying you have to accept almost like a Buddhist and Zen way of saying you have to accept reality as it is and things like that. To me the the most clear example of this is they use the allegory of sledding down the hill at full speed in the snow where it just goes completely out of control and over several different strips they talk about how this is similar to life Mm -hmm. Um, you know, life is just hurtling at full speed down a slide, but you have to enjoy the moments as it goes by, no matter how difficult it gets. Yeah, I, I mean, I completely agree. I love Calvin and Hobbes. And in fact, Avery, my friend, recently just gave me one of three books that he has and said, once you finish this one, I'll give you the next one. And so I've been rotating through Calvin and Hobbes books and I followed. Which one is it? This one is The Days Are Just packed. Um because I think we have yes. Yukon home, and there's something I don't know about it that you can read as an adult, you can read as a child, and I think that part of it has to do with I think the medium through which I think is wasn't it a newspaper comic strip um absolutely, yeah, yeah. you're right, the philosophical parts of it, as well as the really, really silly, stupid, childish parts of it, I don't know all of his tips yeah. with Susie, they cannot be philosophized at all, um you know, yeah. but then there's parts where him and Hobbes are hanging out and there are monsters under the bed and that kind of stuff and yes. they contemplate life um, uh, Spaceman Smith might be my favorite I, as well I think segment <laughs> um, within Calvin and Hobbes yeah I I mean to to conclude on that to me there is something that's so cool about saying that you using creativity and the perspective of the child's imagination um, and the Calvin character as well as with Hobbes they combine something that we as adults hope to have which is this complete love of life and doing all of these silly ridiculous stuff that we used to as children while still being mature a little bit and having a perspective on life. I think Calvin as a character combines Mm. these uh, innocent and silly but also mature and very, very uh, smart elements. In into being one of the most brilliant characters that has ever been drawn on page. That has, I agree. That has really I will also game. add that both Calvin and Hobbes in two different ways. Hobbes by virtue of being an outsider in that he is not human um, and mm-hmm. Calvin by virtue of being innocent as a child um, are such interesting instruments for Bill Watterson to just criticize the modern human um, and the American mm-hmm. in ways that I think um, reading that early on I didn't really understand but nowadays I see it way more often there are there are political statements that he makes and that kind of stuff as well that um, yeah. are very very compelling and his father is kind of the the resigned you know modern midlife crisis man who's just like things are how they are never mind but this kid will continue to push and be like no why why is this the way it is you know and sometimes the answer is it just is yeah but but, uh, but yeah, his perseverance and his love for life, but also his, his you know, the fact that he's way beyond his years, but yeah. somehow uh, he's also extremely silly. I still cannot get over that wonderful combination that makes him movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it's almost like, I mean, with many of these characters, I feel like these are the friends and people that I've lived and grown up yeah. with in a way. They were, they were people who, who lived around us all the <laughs> time in imaginary ways much like the characters that halvin himself makes up in his mind um yeah and so yeah i think on that bittersweet note i i should just conclude with my my bit of uh, the topic for this week that's beautiful um shall we go into the recommendations absolutely what what do we have for this week um i wanted to recommend just a kind of along the vein of being really lighthearted about things an album that i like listening to a lot that's called nada personal um by juan pablo vega um mm-hmm. and it's just a fun latin um Latin rock Latin pop album that i I really really enjoy it's he's got horns and he just has really, really lovely melodies um and if you understand Spanish or are interested in translating the lyrics um they're also pretty fun i mean it's a lot about romance and breakups and that kind of stuff but i just really enjoy it that's awesome i love the spanish music suggestions you gave me i don't understand the words but they sound beautiful anyway (laughs) um my suggestion is also a music album it's um the album my woman by angel olson from 2017 Mm -hmm. um she had a lot of indie buzz uh in that year because i think this was her first sort of full-length proper project as an artist and I think a lot of the work she was doing prior to this was very folksy and country, but this album she she mixed that with with being very indie, and also I think she got a proper band to play with her and and studio, uh, production behind it. So it sounds extremely extremely good. The thing that this instantly reminded me of for some reason was Stevie Nicks, and I think that might be because of her voice and. How passionately she sings, mm-hmm. but I absolutely love her voice and her her musicality and the style and and also a lot of the the other instruments that play around. You know the whole production of the album is just wonderful. And you know the, what the most amazing thing is that um, I got to see her and her band live in Samalo in Brittany when I went to the Hoodjuhok festival back in 2017. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know soon after the the album. Uh, sort of dropped in promotion of it i guess Mm -hmm. is when she went out on tour and it's definitely one of the best live performances i've i've ever seen it was it was such a well put together and great thing you know because all of the band members were wearing sort of a, a similar kind of you know black and white sort of uniform almost and she was wearing something that was distinct and unique but they were all just enjoying themselves so much it was it was a wonderful time uh, yeah and so with that uh, we say goodbye to you for this week thank you for listening to our podcast thank you once again to everyone who's extended their support uh, to us and uh, we'll see you with a new episode next week yep keep listening bye bye all through the day my buddy my buddy nobody quite so true